This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. This is episode 615. So what's the CFO's role? The CFO's role is to lengthen the runway. And what our advice was early on in the first week of the lockdown was our, our judgment was we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know if there's going to be a second wave of COVID lockdowns. We feel that you should try to get to a two years worth of cash. So whatever you're losing per month, divide that on a cash basis. Divide that if you're a money losing company, divide that into the total cash you have. And if you have 24 months worth of cash, you're okay. If you have less than 24 months worth of cash, you should change. And changing means going to all your vendors and trying to lower their prices, stopping buying certain things, and you know p- perhaps either laying people off. I, some of my companies had to take, a, a, they, they took a 20% pay cut across the board for all their employees and the executives took a 30% pay cut. The first, the first priority has to be to preserve the company. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak with Jeff Epstein, an operating partner for Bessemer Venture Partners of Menlo Park, California. Jeff is the former executive vice president and chief financial officer of Oracle, one of the world's largest and most profitable technology companies. I'm sure you've heard of it. Jeff also served as CFO of several public and private companies, including DoubleClick, which was sold to Google way back when, and King World Productions, which was sold to CBS, and Nielsen's Media Measurement and Information Group. Special thanks to Jeff Epstein for joining us and making this a standout episode. So please uh, find yourself a block of time. You do not want to be interrupted. We will begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful.com at planful.com. Hello, we're speaking with Jeff Epstein, CFO Emeritus of Oracle Corp, as well as Nielsen, uh, the media measurement company and DoubleClick, today owned by Google, uh, just to name a few. He is also the operating partner at Bessemer, uh, venture partners today. Jeff, welcome. Jack, it's a pleasure being here. Thank you. 
Jeff, if you wouldn't mind, we're going to take you through our paces, which is to begin with this opener where we ask you to look back and share with us some of those experiences that you feel best prepared you for a CFO role. What comes to mind? Well, after college, I went straight to business school and then ended up on Wall Street working in the merger and acquisition department for what was then First Boston. It's now Credit Suisse. And I specialized in the media industry, uh, television, cable, radio, magazines, newspapers, doing media mergers and acquisitions for two of the greatest M&A partners ever, Bruce Washington and Joe Perella. So I, I learned at the feet of the best practitioners. I was always interested in finance, but I have never worked at that point. I had never worked in a finance department. And one of my clients was a company called King World, which distributed Wheel of Fortune, Jeopardy and Oprah Winfrey. So it was actually a small company with only 300 employees, but they had three of the highest rated, most profitable shows in television, about 300 million of revenue, 60 million of operating income. They had an accounting CFO and they wanted a Wall Street CFO. And it's the type of situation where if they went through a recruiter, I never would have made the resume screen because I had never been a CFO or worked for a CFO. But because they knew me, they gave me a chance and they asked me to join them as CFO of a New York Stock Exchange company. This is now over 30 years ago and uh, I was 32 years old and it was a great opportunity for me to get my first CFO job in a public company. Wow, good, great opening chapter. Now, you're based in New York at that time. That's right. So you're in the right city for media, but we wouldn't uh, think about it for tech necessarily back in the 90s. What? Tell us about that transition. Well, I, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett, and he talks about how he recommends investing within your circle of competence. And I've always thought about my career as investing my time the same way that some an investor like Buffett might invest their money. And of course, you want to invest your time within your circle of competence. But over time, you want to expand your circle of competence. And I've now been working for 40 years, so I've had plenty of time to expand. And I had a chance. I was the CFO of, of uh, King World for six years. Company value tripled. Company did really well. Ultimately, was sold to CBS. And then I had a chance. I got a call from a recruiter uh, for DoubleClick. They were looking for a CFO, and they either wanted they wanted a public company experience CFO, and they either wanted someone from the media industry or the technology experience because DoubleClick was an early internet advertising technology company. And I had the media experience. Uh, they hired me. And then while I was there, I got the technology experience. So that was it was a way of starting with media, but then expanding my set of experiences and familiarity with the cloud software back in 1998. And it was a real exciting time because the first the very first Internet ad in history ran in 1995. And I joined in 1998 when the Internet advertising market was still quite small and emerging. And two years ago, global internet advertising surpassed global television advertising to be the biggest media in the world and all within my career, you know, all within the last 25 years. And so uh, to, you know, if you're around long enough, you see these incredible trends and if you can ride one of these waves, good things happen. I want to ask you if we can touch on uh, for a moment, the relationship with the CEO here, you've had, uh, multiple uh, CFO tours of duty, five or six of them. Curious, what advice uh, would you have when it comes to keeping that relationship healthy, fully functioning? What Anything come to mind? You've had all these different experiences. 
Well, it's of course, relationship with your boss is always important. And when your boss is the CEO, it's especially important. Uh, there's a couple of thoughts I have there. Uh, one is uh, the analogy I think of is uh, when you, if you were coaching a, a kid's soccer team, uh, when you're very young, uh, all the kids will run to the ball. And one of the first things you teach the kids to do is if you're the left wing, but the ball's on the right side, don't run over to the right side to kick the ball, stay on your position because eventually the ball will come over to you and you need to be there when it comes to you. And it's, it's the, the metaphor there is that every executive in a company needs to play their position. So the CFO should be, think about the risks, think about what can go wrong. The general counsel should keep you out of legal trouble. The head of sales should figure out how can we grow. The head of marketing should be saying, how do we expand the product person say, how do we develop new products? But if the CFO is saying, let's expand as quickly as we can, you're not playing your position and you're not giving the CEO the balance that the CEO needs. So the first thing in my view is you have to have a relationship with the CEO where they trust your judgment, you have credibility and you play your position. You can still say, uh, look, you know, here's an area where we should spend more and grow faster, but on balance, you should be the person putting your hand on the scale on one side of the scale, usually as a general counsel and the CFO on one side of the scale, and it's the head of sales and marketing on the other side of the scale. So the CEO can get all points of view. Curious then uh, about the communication and the back and forth. Again, having had these different uh, relationships over time, uh, so many of them, um, has the communication rhythm with CEOs varied from one company to the next? And I'm sure it has. But uh, it like, did you speak with some CEOs multiple times a day while others, uh, you know, much more infrequently? What what would you tell us? Uh, yes, it's you know over the course of the years it's been a wide range. So Roger King, the chairman of King World, was a very informal, incredible salesperson, incredible business person, but was had no process. So in fact, I remember I learned a lot from him. I was sitting in a meeting with him, and we were talking about an idea we had for one of our TV station clients, and he said that's a great idea. And he picked up the phone and he dialed from memory the phone number for the general manager of WPVI in Philadelphia, the ABC state Cap City station. And he got him on the phone and he told us the idea. It was about three minutes after it came out of my mouth, Roger was pitching this idea to the CEO of our biggest customer. And, you know, I would have thought about, you know, let's review it. Let's have meetings. Let's have presentations. And he just was, if it's a good idea, let's get it done right now. So I, that was a real eye opener for me. And then in contrast, when I worked for Nielsen, it was owned by a company called VNU, which was a Dutch company. And they would have monthly uh, business review meetings for every business. And then, so I had to attend the business review meetings for the, for, I, I was in charge of 14 businesses, the CFO of 14 businesses, and I would attend each of their business review meetings. And then I would go to the business review meeting for my group with the senior people at corporate headquarters. And so at the beginning of the month, I had 10 days, full days blocked out for business review meetings. So it was I've seen both extremes, and the, I think the optimal is you know, probably somewhere in the middle. Now, just, just what you shared uh, with us about King World, you were sort of playing that, that traditional CFO counterpart to a, to a CEO, where you were um, concerned about process and approach and, and what have you. Well, that's right. I think, and it depends where you are on the growth of the company, King World had come from a family business where the only employees were the four brothers and sisters to a New York Stock Exchange company. And I had joined them just you know, soon after that. So they didn't have those processes in place. And I, I did put in you know, budget and some 
some basic processes. You know, a company like Oracle had been around for 30 years and had very sophisticated, very efficient and effective processes. And so there wasn't really much to change there. Uh, you know, Oracle had a great philosophy, which they called simplify, standardize, centralize and automate. So because we were so big, even though we were pretty good at what we did, we made a lot of acquisitions. We had new products. We would expand to new countries. So there were always re or new technologies would, would come out. So there were always reasons why the way you were doing it, if, if the process had, was five or five years old or older, it was no longer optimal. And so if you use this, this construct of take the process, make it as simple as possible, standardize it so you're doing it the same way everywhere within the company, everywhere within the world, centralize it so it can happen in one location if you physically can do that. So we had a thousand person credit collections team all in one building in Mumbai, India, rather in Bangalore, India, uh, doing global credit collections, made it very efficient. Uh, and then automate it because you don't want to automate if you automate a complex, non-standard, decentralized process, you're just making something permanently inefficient. So you first want to simplify, standardize, and centralize, and then at the end, automate it. And so Oracle was world-class in constantly doing that. We had a team of people we call global process owners that would that would do that both for ourselves and for the companies we acquired. And so I, I over the years, learned how to do that and how to apply it or a variation on that to, you know, to other companies. It doesn't, you know, Oracle is so large uh, that you could afford to spend a fair amount on process redesign because the benefits were tens of millions of dollars for anything you approved. For a mid-sized company, you know, you don't want to spend a million dollars to save $10,000. So uh, there's a balance of, of how, how much inefficiency can you tolerate for a mid-sized company before you try to change it. Curious, as you went from uh, one company to the next and the weight class of company, let's call it that, differed, say, uh, jumping to Oracle, such a large organization. Did you feel that there was any one weight class where your own skills as a, an experience as a CFO were a better match? Or uh, did you find that, you know, each experience allowed you to grow, obviously, and test certain areas? But, you know, certain companies challenged you more, no doubt. Would you mind something of a personal reflection as to what might have been a good match for you as far as company size? Well, you know, some of my friends really like enterprise and would feel uncomfortable in the unstructured environment of a very small company and others love startups and don't like the bureaucracy of big companies. And I don't know why, for some reason, I, I'm comfortable in both. I've had spent many years in, in both. Uh, and what I love doing is I, my philosophy is that anything that is being done can be done better. And so how can I do that given the context of the company, the, you know, the money, the resources, the people, the cost benefit analysis, and I, I've actually, over the years, become comfortable with with the wide range of scale. And besides Oracle, I also served for 16 years on the board of Booking Holdings. And Booking, when I joined it, was Priceline, which had a $1 billion market value. And when I retired 16 years later, it had an $80 billion market value. So not only have I worked for smaller companies like DoubleClick and KingWorld and larger companies like Oracle and Nielsen, but at Booking, I saw a company go from being a small company to becoming a larger company and see how that changed over time. And it's just fascinating. It's uh, I love solving business problems. And, uh, you know, as you said, each step along the way, I, I've learned. Well, being a uh, clearly a board member today and having held various board roles over time and having been a CFO over time, 
we'd be interested in learning about the board relationship, the communication that needs to be there, what works, what doesn't. I'm sure over time, you've, as the CFO, let's take it from that perspective, I guess, first, you know, you've seen where the communications with the board, you felt you were very effective, or you felt you, you had the opportunities that were required to, to keep that a healthy relationship. Others, perhaps not, not always the case. What, what would you tell us about that relationship, the CFO's relationship with the board? What keeps it healthy? And uh, what would you share with us? Well, of course, the first uh, rule for any CFO is integrity, uh, that you don't want to try to uh, color the facts. You want to just give shoot straight down the middle and say, here are the pl pluses, here are the minuses. Uh, and you want to give all the information to the board so they have full command of the facts and then give your opinion about them and what you think should be done. But you know, you don't want to, uh, to, put, to, to try to uh, be an advocate, too much of an advocate for something without giving the other side or two or three sides of any argument, you know, it's fair share. So I try to present the pluses and minuses of any course of action or any situation. Uh, the, beyond the, the ethical question of openness and honesty, the second uh, priority is no surprises. Now, of course, there always are surprises, but fundamentally what you want to do is try to share with the board all the things that can go wrong in advance. And then if something does go wrong, let them know immediately and just fundamentally under promise and over deliver. And then you build credibility with the board. And when something goes wrong later, later down the road, uh, you can draw on that credibility bank that you've invested in. I think in terms of communicating with the board, often the CFO is key in setting the board agenda and the board presentation. And I think of board meetings themselves as having three key components. The first part is the compliance part. You know, you have to have your comp committee and, and audit committee and governance and things like that. But beyond that, the, the discretionary part of the board has two components. One part is educating the board on what the company's doing, what's happening, what's the, what's, what are the customers saying, what's happening in product. I call that the show and tell part. Fundamentally, it's the company leadership educating the board, bringing the board up to speed. The second part is discussing with the board decisions management has not yet made, but is considering. We're thinking of launching this new product we haven't decided yet. We're thinking of spending $100 million on the new product versus $20 million on the new product. We're thinking of making this acquisition. We're thinking of expanding into Europe or into Latin America. Where should we go first? We're thinking of uh, changing from a centralized to a decentralized structure. Whatever it is that you're thinking about but haven't yet decided, that actually is the highest value conversation with the board. And it's very useful to take a look at your board meeting. If you have a five-hour board meeting, let's say outside of the compliance section, and you're spending four hours on show and tell and only an hour on the decisions you have not yet made, you're doing it wrong. And it should be the other way around. It should be an hour on show and tell and four hours on the key decisions. And the reason is you, you, you hired the board not only for governance and compliance, but also because presumably they know something about your business and they're experienced and they can help you make better decisions. And if you don't tell them until after you make the decisions, then you just you've you've uh, you've given up on one of the key value added opportunities with the board. Now, as an in investor today, do you believe when it comes to working with CFOs that you differ from other investors who just haven't filled the role or just just don't understand that, uh, you know, the challenges and organizational uh, dynamics that make it such a 
important but challenging leadership role? Well, I, I'm not an investing partner at Bessemer, so I don't make I don't invest Bessemer's money. I invest my own personal money. I, I've made, you know, I would say about uh, I've invested in actually 90 different companies over the last 10 years personally. Uh, about half co-investing with Bessemer, where Bessemer is really taking the lead, and I'm just co-investing. And the other half, where typically it's too early for Bessemer, and it's a company that I think is terrific, and I hope is going to grow into a company that Bessemer might invest in in the future. Uh, and clearly, in those areas, uh, it's not only the CFO, but often one reason why I'm attracted to these companies is often it's a product that is sold to CFOs. So one example is a company called Vendor, V-E-N-D-R, which helps CFOs buy cloud software and save money. And so when I first heard about this company, uh, they I introduced them to Bessemer's. Bessemer has about 100 CFO portfolio companies, each of which has a CFO or VP finance. So I introduced them to our portfolio and nine of them within six weeks, nine of our CFOs bought the product. And I go, wow, this company has product market fit. Uh, I should figure out more about this company. And then I got to know and now I'm involved as an advisor in the company. So that's a, a perfect example where you know, not only am I helping the company with their own internal sort of financial strategy, but I'm, I, you know, I, the, the product itself resonates with CFOs. Well, let's touch on uh, raising money and improving the, the business model. Where can CFOs bring the most value when it comes to raising money as far as the, the point of view of an investor. What do you see? What are the uh, the top performing CFOs when it comes to raising money? What are they getting right? Well, uh, the first question is timing. So you want to raise money at the right time. And the famous saying is raise money when you can, not when you need it. Uh, so for instance, right now is a perfect time to raise money if your metrics are anywhere near good because the stock market's at an all-time high. And in spite of COVID, uh, in the investment investing investors are eager to invest uh, and interest rates are low. Uh, the second is positioning the company. And uh, you want to fundamentally, you're telling a story. And as a CFO, you're telling a story with numbers. So, so I spend a lot of my time with software companies. So if I had a software company and I was trying to raise money and they had, let's say, uh, 10 million in revenue today, a an investor like Bessemer wants to have an outcome where the, there's at least a chance of having the company be worth more than a billion dollars. And for the company to be worth more than a billion dollars, at some point, it's got to have revenue of, let's say, 100 million of revenue. So what I have to do is I have to persuade the investor that we can get from 10 million of revenue to 100 million of revenue in some reasonable period of time, you know, five, six, seven years. So how do I do that? Well, I first outline what the end state is going to look like. And I say, well, when we're at 100 million, are we going to have 100 customers paying us a million a year? Or a thousand customers paying us a hundred thousand a year, or ten thousand paying us ten thousand a year. They're very different strategies, and very different marketplaces. So we have to have a point of view about that. And then, based on what that is, if it's a hundred customers paying us a million dollars a year, I have to have a very expensive enterprise sales force. If it's ten thousand customers paying ten thousand a year, I probably only do inside a light inside sales, and I have to have mostly marketing and lead gen. Maybe I have a freemium product like Dropbox. So uh, the the go-to-market strategy is tied into that and the metrics then. And then there's a whole series of metrics. The investors want to know, if I put money in, am I, am I funding a company where they've already figured out the playbook and all they're doing is running the playbook? Or am I putting money in where they haven't figured out the playbook yet and half the money is going to go to just experimenting and trial and error in order to get to the playbook and maybe they'll never find the playbook? 
So I'd like to have metrics if I'm the investor, which gives as much proof that we've already figured out the playbook. So what are those proof points? Well, the first proof point is, do we have product market fit? Do I have a high net promoter score? Do I have ref many are is a high percent are a high percentage of my current customers referenceable where the customer can just randomly call any customer and they get a, a, an endorsement that the product's great. If I have salespeople are 75% of my salespeople making quota uh, metrics like that in terms of that I, we have product market fit and we have a repeatable sales process. Uh, the other uh, sales metric I like to see is CAC payback, but it's if you take all the customer acquisition costs, marketing and sales, and you say, how much gross profit per year do I bring in from my new new customer market marketing and sales? Does that pay back in a year? Does that pay back in two years? Does that pay back in three years? At Bessemer, we want to see that pay back in under two years. What's my win rate? What percentage of deals do I win? When I lose, who do I lose to? Why don't I win? Uh, when uh, if I'm do is it all direct sales or do I sell through partners? What's my partner strategy? Uh, how much if I'm doing marketing? How much marketing do I get from Google, from Facebook, from from other marketing channels? So all those metrics are really important. And then finally, once I have a reasonable business, can I keep my customers? What's my gross renewal rate? If I start with 100 customers a year later, do I have 95 or 75? And then the customers who are left, do they buy the same amount or they buy less or they buy more? And that tells me what my net renewal rate is. So maybe I, I started with 100 customers, I end up with 90, but the 90 who are left all buy more. So I end up with $110 of revenue from the $100 of revenue before I'm growing 10% with no new customers. So you want to see a net renewal rate above 100%. So this, I've just given you a sort of my my uh, my per, my personal and Bessemer's sort of guides to all the metrics that we look at. And you, if you're the if you're the CFO pitching investors, with any luck, many of those metrics are very attractive, and you you share with the investor the attractive ones, and then the ones that aren't attractive. Let's say that my let's say only 40% of my sales teams make a quote instead of 75%. Then I tell them, and, you know, I don't hide it. I say, look, we have 40% of my sales team in quota. Here's what we're doing about it. You know, we're, we've just hired a head of sales training, a sales enablement, where our sales to the $10,000 customers are great, but our sales to the $100,000 customers are poor. We've just hired two new salespeople there, and, and we have a we have a playbook for how to fix that. I want to uh, touch on with you the uh, strategic communication, strategically communicating the story. And we know how important that is, and you've already touched on it several times. Uh, but CFOs have to, of course, uh, do it internally as well as externally. Certain CFOs excel at speaking to the investment uh, community, but uh, perhaps don't do all the internal communications they should, or just don't focus on it as much as they do uh, their presentations for the investors. Can you share some thoughts on that for us? Well, I think it's critical for any leader, certainly the CFO when they talk to investors uh, or uh, employees, the CEO, uh, when they recruit and tell the story to, to the public or the press, the head of sales and marketing, when they tell the story to potential customers, and everyone needs to have this, the same story. And the, the story fundamentally is about what's the vision and then what do you think you can be in some reasonable period of time, like five years, and how do you get from here to there? So. You know, of course, one of the greatest storytellers is Elon Musk, and his vision for SpaceX is we're going to go to Mars. Now, you know, they're probably not going to get to Mars for my lifetime and maybe my children's lifetime, 
So that's sort of an extreme case of the grand vision. Uh, but let's take a company like Booking.com, which is the biggest hotel company in the world. You know, our vision was just make it really easy for every hotel to let any traveler, anyone in their world, book, book a room on that hotel and for every traveler to book any hotel in the world. So you've got many millions of hotels all around the world. And then, you know, in the last 10 years book, with booking home, you've got people renting out their homes or apartments and things like that. So it's not just hotels, it's any accommodation. And our vision is that every traveler everywhere in the world should be able to book any accommodation to find and book and have a great experience uh, on booking.com's website. And so that's the vision. And then the question is, if you're talking to a financial audience, well, you know, how big can that be? And you start out by saying, well, the average uh, room night is, let's say, $100 a night. And uh, we have we start off with, let's say, X thousand hotels in booking.com's case in the Netherlands, and then in Germany, and then in Europe, in Priceline's case, we own Priceline in, in the United States, we own Agoda in Asia. So you say, well, how many hotels can we have in each country? How many countries can we be in? Uh, how many uh, room nights can we fill in each of those in each of those hotels? That's the supply side. On the demand side, how do we tell our story to get people to find our website? And how do we do that through advertising? What's our cost per new customer relative to that hundred dollars? Typically, out of that hundred dollars, the hotel gets roughly eighty-five dollars, and we get fifteen. So, uh, you know, can we afford? Can we can we get can we sell that hotel room for let's say $5 of advertising and to make a $10 margin on that $15 uh, number? And then can, can we do it at scale? And of course we have done it at scale and now booking.com you know, pre, pre COVID was spending many billions of dollars a year on Google uh, as an example, because Google was a very efficient channel for us and we we're spending money on our own site, kayak and, and other travel related sites. And, and then the, the third, so the first element is the supply. The second element is the demand. And then the third element is customer support and customer service. Turns out, you know, over 10% of all trips end up with a problem of some kind. The, the, you show up at the hotel, they're sold out. Uh, you change your reservation. They they want to charge your fee, but you had booked a, a, a no change fee, but they're arguing with you. You want your you know you want to be near the pool for your kids, but you didn't get the right room. And so you want to be able to call Booking.com and speak to a human being and have them solve the problem for you. And so Booking has thousands of employees customer service and we give great customer service and ironically the it's the customers who had a problem who become our most loyal customers because we're really good at solving their problems so if you have those three elements had it if this is back to the investor telling the story you say there's a huge market we can have we have great supply we have great demand we have great customer service and our goal ultimately is to have every traveler use booking.com to find their place to stay and and by the way we've been growing it you know whatever for many years, 50% a year, more recently, pre-COVID, you know, 15 or 20% a year, uh, five, 10 years from now, we're gonna be a much bigger company. Just wanna to touch on uh, COVID with you and the, the likely outcomes here. As you look at uh, different businesses and how they're responding, are there certain economic indicators that you're paying close attention to these days? How, do you, how are you keeping a read on where you think the economy will head? Well, from my investments in my own personal companies and also through Bessemer's portfolio, we have a broad array of companies that we can see uh, the impact. And the impact is, you know, is wide ranging based on sector. So there are some companies, especially in technology, communication, telemedicine, uh, in uh, education, online education, where COVID has been uh, an accelerator. 
So there were trends that were happening before, and now they're happening faster. And in many of those cases, they're never going to go back. So I think in particular telemedicine and online education, uh, th there are people who are now used to that who will to some extent go back to normal, but they're, they're, it'll, it'll be a new high level that it'll, things will stabilize at. Then there are other areas like going to hotels at booking.com, for instance, or uh, other travel related sites or events related businesses. I have some one business I'm involved in, which they have a wonderful business uh, distributing healthy snacks to people in their offices. And it's growing really fast, but if people's not in their office, if no one's in their office, they're not going to eat in their office. And so, you know, they've had to have layoffs and, and uh, had to you know, figure out how to deliver those healthy snacks to people at home and how to keep those relationships alive. So that when people start to go back to the office, they 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 uh, they continue to use the product. And it's a wide range and, and many people in the middle as well. So it's it's there's no the, the, to answer your question, there isn't an overall answer. It's very specific to the product you're selling and the customer you're selling it to. And each sector will have a different rate of recovery. Any sense of for those companies that are able to recover faster, what do you think they'll have in common? Well, I think there's two answers to that. One is just the, the, the nature of the product they're selling and, the, and the, the market they're in. So the ones that have these wind at their back and the accelerating, what they have in common is just that working out of the office uh, is, is helpful for their business model. Uh, there are other companies who are facing headwinds. And the question there is, has the, did the company act quickly and decisively to preserve capital. So if you're a venture-backed company and you're losing money, the number one thing a CFO has to do is never run out of money. And if you, you know, there are some companies that their revenues literally went to zero from, you know, growing very fast and having a wonderful business to go into zero. And if your revenues went to zero and you have eight months worth of cash left at the end of eight months, you're, you're done. So what's the CFO's role? The CFO's role is to lengthen the runway. And what our advice was early on in the first week of the lockdown was our, our judgment was, we don't know how long this is gonna last. We don't know if there's gonna be a second wave of COVID lockdowns. We feel that you should try to get to a two years worth of cash. So whatever you're losing per month, divide that on a cash basis, divide that if you're a money losing company, divide that into the total cash you have. And if you have 24 months worth of cash, you're okay. If you have less than 24 months worth of cash, you should change. And changing means uh, going to all your vendors and trying to like, lower their prices, stopping buying certain things, and you know perhaps uh, either laying people off. I, some of my companies had to take a, a, they they took a 20% pay cut across the board for all their employees, and the executives took a 30% pay cut, uh, and uh, you know it's gonna it'll probably save the company because I think. You know, some sometime in the next six to twelve months, the company will come back. It'll do great, and maybe there'll be. A, and we, we've recommended companies give equity to the employees who've given up cash, so that if the company does well, it'll actually make more money over time. Uh, but the first the first priority has to be to preserve the company. We'll be back with CFO Emeritus Jeff Epstein after this. The business landscape is changing quickly as the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases. You need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business at us bank. We can help. 
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We always, uh, towards the end of our interview, we always ask this question, if you could go back in time and uh, think about that first time you stepped into a CFO role, which I guess would have been at Kingworld, um, what you would tell yourself. Now, Jeff, uh, it seemed like your career has gone swimmingly well here, and uh, one would imagine, uh, but if you could go back and tell your younger self some piece of advice or something, be curious what that might be. Well, a, a friend told me this piece of advice, which I didn't know at the time, and I wish I did, but I've, I've used it and I've shared it with my friends and, and coworkers and my children. And it's this, when you start a new job, and actually when you interview for a new job, here is the question, that the best question that I like. It's ask your new boss, uh, okay, imagine I've started this new job and now you're doing my performance review a year from now. And you say, Jeff, I'm so glad we hired you because you've accomplished the following three things. What are those three things? And what it does is it makes it crystal clear what your boss expects of you. And often your boss will know and they'll tell you. And sometimes your boss really hasn't thought about it. And getting them to think about it and articulate it is really helpful. Because if they haven't thought about it, you don't want to be spending six months and they still haven't thought about what your priorities should be. And and I found that that's a terrific question to ask if you haven't already asked it your first week of work, but it's really a, a, also a great question to work when you interview it before they even hire you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, just uh, we always ask our guests to reflect a little on the personal side. Is there some habit or daily routine that you have, Jeff, that over the years has paid dividends on the professional side or kept you uh, on the even keel over the years? What would you tell us? Well, I think that the quality that has been really helpful for me is curiosity. I'm just, I've always been curious. And it's interesting to go from being an executive to being a board member, because fundamentally a board member's job is to ask questions. And if I could, going back to something you said earlier about a personal habit or quality that I wish I had done earlier is when I was young, I thought I knew everything. And as I got older, I realized how much I didn't know. And it's just so much better most of the time to just ask an open-ended question. It's not as if you're trying to ask a question like, you know, we should do X, shouldn't we? That's not the kind of question I'm talking about. It's, you know, what do you think, you know, what do you think we do really well? What can we do better? How could I be helpful? Uh, you know, what can, what should, what should our top priority be? What's your top priority? You know, just open-ended questions like that, which to me are you know, fundamentally about curiosity. I think if I, and now that's developed into a habit where I do that, you know, with all the companies I work with. And I think if I had done that earlier, it would have been more productive. Okay. Well, I, we're up to uh, what would ordinarily be our final question. And it occurs to me, I never asked you uh, for uh, uh, what we refer to as our finance strategic moment. I, I didn't ask you because I felt you were sharing so many insights along the way. It kind of was silly to have you single out just one. But you know what? Um, just given about what you're up to today as an investor, 
um, as well as this long career that you have, I feel I better I better circle back and ask you. Um, and it could be a story from uh, something recent, uh, and uh, or uh, you know from the past. What comes to mind, uh, Jeff, if we were to ask you for a finance strategic moment? Could I tell two stories? Absolutely, we'd love it. Okay. Uh, the first story is about this company vendor that I mentioned, where I spent my whole career trying to make my companies more effective and efficient. And so I, I think uh, if, if you're a CFO and you buy software, uh, this company can really help you. And I, I'm spending, it's the, probably the company I'm spending most of my time with. So that's the, the first story where they can save money on procurement, on buying software. And the second story is my life, my time at DoubleClick, where uh, the, we, I had joined the stock was uh, trading for $250 million. This was during the internet boom. We went up to $13 billion in two and a half years. And then the market cooled off a little bit. We were probably at about $11 billion. And we, we, we wanted to take advantage of this saying that I had of you know, raise money when you can. So we, we got ready to do a $700 million follow-on offering. And we did a roadshow starting Monday morning. We were going to price Thursday night. And Wednesday morning, I was at, uh, or Wednesday at lunch, I was at an investor lunch where I was giving the presentation and I get a note saying I should call my office. I call my office, they say, call NASDAQ. I call NASDAQ, they say, we, uh, we've had a lot of sell interest in your stock. And I go, what's going on? Did you read that article in USA Today this morning? And there was an article about how DoubleClick was uh, violating people's privacy in the front page of the business section of USA Today. And I read the article, but I, you know, I didn't, we didn't do anything to violate anyone's privacy. I didn't think anything of it. Evidently, uh, investors didn't agree. And NASDAQ say, we have so much sell interest, we've stopped trading in your stock. So here I am on a roadshow, and they've stopped trading in our stock at 1 p.m. And Wednesday afternoon, we're trying to price Thursday night. So we all got together Wednesday night and say, what are we going to do? What's going to happen to the stock? We ask our under underwriters, you know, what do they think the stock's going to open at? They predicted that it's going to open 20, down 20% which turned out to be right. And then we had to decide, we as a management team and a board, should we go ahead with the offering or not? And I argued strongly that we should go ahead with the offering because even at a $9 billion market value, we had 500 million in revenue, we were losing money. That was still 18 times revenue. It was still a great valuation. The fact that we were trading more yesterday didn't matter. The question is, is this a good valuation today? Uh, other people said, no, we shouldn't go ahead with it because we don't want to sort of prove to people that they can damage us through this, you know, bad, this, this inaccurate portrayal of us as, as being anti-privacy, we were pro-privacy. And, uh, and yet we, we went ahead and we decided to do it. And so we did get the offering done at about that price, you know, down 20% from the prior price. And then 9-11 uh, happened, the whole world came to an end, the NASDAQ crashed, stock went down, you know, substantially, and uh, it saved the company because even though the company was losing money all for the next several years, we had a we had all that money in cash on our balance sheet, and so that was that was quite an experience. And uh, I'm glad I was uh, I was there to to have you know. And actually, the the background of that story is I was worked at First Boston in 1987 when the stock market crashed 25% one day. And had I had I not seen that, maybe I wouldn't have felt so strongly about it. But I, I felt I had such personal experience in the volatility of the capital markets that it just underscored for me this idea that the capital markets are open sometimes and they're closed sometimes and it's really important to raise money when they're open like today for instance so my advice to everyone on this call is if you can raise money today raise it now <laughs> <laughs>
That's a great place to end. If Jeff Epstein, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be here. Thanks. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor. Be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.